Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Akil Reed Amar is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. His many writings include America's Constitution, a biography, and America's Unwritten Constitution. His most recent book is entitled The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. It is, uh, I'll say up front, it is a towering study of the civic formation of the United States in their first four score, as he, as he says. And that is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Amar. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. We jump right into the book here. First, the title. Uh, why, why not the ideas that made us, the principles that made us? Why the words that made us? Uh, well, in truth, I actually also talk about pictures, um, uh, the, the cartoons. Um, uh, Benjamin Franklin gives us the lightning rod and bifocals and, um, uh, uh, and all sorts of uh, uh, cool other cool inventions, the Franklin stove. Uh, he also gives us really the first political cartoon. It's from 1754, Join or Die. So it, it truthfully is the words and pictures. Um, and, and, uh, and, and the words are about ideas, uh, of course. But I, I think I wanted really to highlight how, in particular, speaking of Franklin, um, uh, newspapers are important, uh, 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 press culture, literacy, written constitutions that um, emerge side by side with an extraordinary newspaper culture. Newspapers um, um, are, are, are very widely read. There's more newspaper readership in America than anywhere in the world per capita. Um, mm. and, um, and constitutions are short documents. And I say constitutions with an S because I talk about the state constitutions that emerge in this period as well as the federal. And they're short, not so judges can make stuff up. They're short so that ordinary people can literally read them in newspapers and decide whether they're for them or against them. And, and other people can kind of cut and paste. Um, uh, so you, you can see the people in Maryland can see what Virginia has done and borrow some of that for their own declaration of, of rights and, and, and so on. So um, it, it is, you're right. Um, it's, it's about the, the principles that made us, the ideas that made us. It's about all of that. You, you mentioned ordinary people. That's, that's a theme that runs through the book and we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll, we'll come back to that. And the us, right? The us, all of us uh, is, is emphasized here. Qu question about date. Uh, why start at 1760 instead of 1776, uh, uh, 1787, 89? Um, so on, before I say, uh, answer that, yes, us. Um, and it's a pun, the words that made in effect us. <laughs> okay. And, 
and and I start um, and and if you and on the cover of the book actually U.S. is um, it's, it's a, a, I had a, a brilliant graphic designer um, and she uh, underlines that with a, a, a little um, a red squiggly line and blue squiggly line so the, the flag um, uh, both parties so I want to start my book before there is an us before Americans actually understand themselves as a special people with a special destiny. Um, so um, uh, I want to tell the story of the lead up to 1776, the Declaration of Independence, and then the Constitution um, in 1787-88, and, and of course the state constitutions in between. And so when I start my book, which is even earlier than most people, most historians, almost every history book about the American lead up to the American Revolution be it, um, um, seven America's, you know, um, founding period or something, 1763 to 76 or 1763 to, um, 1789 or something like that when Washington takes his oath of office. But in my telling of the story, it starts even before, why 1763? That's when the French and Indian year with, uh, French and Indian war with the rest of the world called the seven years war ends. Britain has just fought this very expensive war for colonial um, uh, territory. They beat the, the, uh, the, uh, the French. They claim Canada as their prize. Hooray. Now, it's going it's to be actually mixed back because they're going to win Canada and eventually lose America. And there's a connection between them, those things, because in order to pay for this war, they start taxing Americans and Americans don't like that. And that's the conventional story. And the war ends in 1763 and the taxes begin the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act in 1764, 65. That's the conventional narrative. I start even earlier than that, 1760, because in my view, even before the Brits start misbehaving, even before the war is over, even before the Treaty of Paris is concluded in 1763, even before all of that, the Americans are beginning to itch and agitate for independence. Um, and, and, and John Adams sees all of this. Um, and one way to put it is if, if for, you and I actually have, have, have met and we, we've talked about our families, um, you know, when the kids turn 16, you know, they realize, oh, do I really need mom and dad anymore? I, I, can, I can start to be on my own. Uh, can I have the car keys and, 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 and toodles? Okay. And that's actually the American story. Because as soon as Montreal falls to the Brits, which is actually um, the fall of the autumn of 1760, Americans in Boston begin to realize, hey, we don't need the Brits to protect us against Quebec and Montreal. The, um, um, we don't need their shield. We can be on our own. You know, the dad can be out of the car keys. That's, so, so I start early, and, and at that time, they're not Americans. They are Massachusetts people and Virginians and New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians. Um, uh, an analogy would be the British Commonwealth of Nations circa 1930, something like that. You know, we're now marking, you know, the end of, of the reign of Elizabeth and the beginning of the reign of her um, uh, uh, heir, her successor. My book begins actually with the death of one monarch, an old monarch, and the ascension of another one, the death of George II, not Elizabeth II, and the ascension of, of um, um, George III rather than Charles III. But let's... Look at the world when, when Elizabeth, uh, the late Queen Elizabeth II, is just a girl. She's, she's, um, um, she looks out at the world, and there's the British Commonwealth of Nations, and it includes India and Kenya and um, 
New Zealand and Canada and Ireland. And these are different kingdoms or different realms, different regimes. They're all connected to London, but they're not really connected to one another very much. That's America in 1760. It happened to be geographically contiguous, but there is no American identity yet. But starting in 1760, the British start to take steps that will forge an American identity. And so that's the story I want to tell, how we become a we, how America, Americans become Americans, how, how we become a people, an us. You know about 1760, when George III comes, ascends the throne in late 1760, that at that time, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, the colonies, America, so, so, so you know, monumental on, on, in, in world history from now, from our perspective, but back then you say that America, the colonies were somewhat of a minor interest in, in, in England. You actually refer to them as an afterthought uh, among some. Is this, is this sort of one of the main reasons why, why they started, why, as you said, the, uh, 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 the English started misbehaving? Yes, and mine is a slightly different story. It's not just tyranny um, and a long train of abuses and a Lockean right of revolution in the Declaration of Independence. It will become that. And Brits are going to actually really misbehave, especially in the late 1760s and 1770s with things like the Coercive Acts, what Americans call the Intolerable Acts. But it begins, in my view, a little earlier. And, and again, you can, it, the, I'm using this adolescent metaphor. The Brits just aren't paying very much attention to America. They are an afterthought. Uh, the British Empire is kind of negligent um, um, and indifferent way before it becomes tyrannical. And, and I, in these tiny little facts, these, um, I, you know, I, I sometimes put, you put them forth and say, aha, you can see actually something important. So here are two or three little facts. The old monarch is dead. There's a new monarch. There's a lot of pomp and pageantry. And our audience knows that just you know, in, in, in the last couple of months. We saw all that pomp and pageantry because you know, tr transitions of power are always fraught, you know, making sure that it's a smooth transition, that everyone accepts the legitimacy of a new person. Okay, So there's a lot of pomp and pageantry in London when one monarch dies and a new one ascends the throne, and they can't even be bothered to remember that they've got American colonies and they should tell the American colonies what to do, whether to proclaim the new monarch. They, they just kind of forget because they're not paying attention. And this is like an adolescent basically saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm kind of important now. I have my own identity. And from an adolescent point of view, mom and dad don't seem to, you know, be, 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 be they're, they're living their own lives. And, that, and so, so, so yes, um, I tell the story of British negligence and indifference before the story, the story of, of, of British oppression and tyranny. And that starts as early as 1760. Here's, for example, another aha fact. Um, so there's a fellow, he's written, he's written many important books about Churchill, um, about Napoleon. Um, his name is Andrew Roberts. He's a very um, a popular Brit historian. He just has written a book um, all about George III is called The Last King of America. And he says, oh, George III was a good guy. He's misunderstood. He's an enlightenment figure. He believes in um, a progress. He's, he's gotten a bum rap. And I'm thinking, really? Okay, here are the aha facts. 
Americans are sending petitions to the king about their grievances, and he's not can't be bothered even to, to read them um, and answer them. He, does, he refuses to hear them at a certain point. He's not reading American newspapers, and Americans are reading their own newspapers. And, and in the story that I tell, the Massachusetts people at the beginning aren't reading Virginia newspapers and vice versa, but as, as um, the 1760s proceeds, they start to talk to each other. They're no longer just talking uh, to London. Here's a third aha fact. So, you know, I'm saying George III won't let the petitions be read to him. He doesn't read American newspapers, and Americans are reading each other. Benjamin Franklin and George Washington are getting to know each other through newspapers and other things. Franklin is in um, London for 10 years as an American agent. He's one of the great figures of the world. You know, if he were in the 20th century, he'd be like Albert Einstein or something like that. He's, you know, he's the American Prometheus who brought, you know, fire from, from the heavens, discovering electricity and, and you know, the connection between static electricity and lightning and, and how you can store it in, 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 a, in a jar and amazing stuff. Um, um, the scientists of the world, the Enlightenment figures, have great respect for Dr. Franklin. He's in the mm-hmm. years. And they call him Dr. Franklin. The guy is the 10th um, child of a candle maker, you, you know, product of a second marriage. So he's in London for 10 years. Does George III ever so much as invite him for a cup of tea? Not once. He could, he could have Franklin wrapped around his little finger, you know, um, and, 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 and the scientists are calling him Dr. Franklin, but he's self-taught. But, but from the British point of view, he's an American, so who cares? He's low-born, so who cares? He's actually not college-educated, so who cares? Maybe he doesn't speak Latin. Um, um, so, so he's just um, he's beneath notice, and that's very similar, you see, to the story I tell in Chapter 1, where the Brits... They have all this pomp and pageantry um, with their coronation and proclamation and all the rest in London, and they're not paying any attention to the Americans. We're saying, hey, pay attention to us. We're, we're significant. Well, one of, the, one of the really great things about your book is that you really do treat these larger-than-life figures as human beings. And they're, they're talented, industrious figures, but they do feel, you, you, you highlight the way they feel snubbed and disdained by the king and others. And what I would extend that to is in, in your presentation, uh, such as of the, the Sugar and Stamp Acts, you compile a daunting mass of original sources, pamphlets, uh, older histories and, and biographies, letters, government documents, and so on. I don't know how long it took you to compile the, the research for this 800-page book, but it's a great story. I, I, I as an editor, I, I have to compliment you on you on your brisk prose style and the the episodes, the episode, the, you know, the, the the Boston Tea Party and other 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 many not so famous episodes that you recount in dramatic detail. So let me ask you about a couple of characters that we don't remember so much, but that come across as again vivid figures. Who was? James Otis Jr. And, and what's his importance? James Otis Jr. was Patrick Henry before Patrick Henry was Patrick Henry. He's the Patrick Henry of Massachusetts. He's a rabble-rousing um, lawyer who wants attention for himself. He's an attention grabber. Patrick Henry is an attention grabber. He's going to eventually become governor of, of Virginia. James Otis wants to be Speaker of the House of 
uh, Massachusetts. His father is actually Speaker of the House. His father is self-made. His father um, um, uh, was basically um, um, a shoemaker who turned himself into a sort of the self-made lawyer, Abraham Lincoln style. But the son, you know, um, went to Harvard, first generation Harvard, very ambitious, just like John Adams, um, whose father was a shoemaker, but he's first generation Harvard. These are very smart, ambitious Bostonians. And in my story, it begins in Boston, not in Virginia. That's going to turn out to be important because let's say the 1619 project, it acts as if America is one thing and it's a slavery thing. And it's all about Virginia. Now, in fact, Slavery doesn't begin in the world in 1619. Almost all societies and almost all places have it. 1619 is what comes from to Virginia. But if my story is remotely close to being right, actually stuff is happening in Boston way before the Virginians are doing anything. And Boston is actually anti-slavery. James Otis is anti-slavery. And he's saying anti-slavery things even in the early 1760s. Um, he's saying the Brits aren't treating us very well, but by the way, because he's a Puritan and he's always looking into his own soul, or if he's not a Puritan, he's surrounded by Puritans. And um, and I know you're interested in, in, in things spiritual. Um, and so he's basically saying like, if we are going to complain to the Brits, we got to get straight, you know, with God ourselves. And we got to, t- you know, remove the beam in our own eye. And, and so, um, but most people haven't heard of James Otis because um, as the revolution kicks into high gear, he actually suffers um, mental instability. It's, it's poignant because he hmm. is similar to George III in certain ways. They, they both actually have serious mental illness. He actually dies very dramatically getting struck by lightning. So he's a really interesting character. And here's how I discovered him. John Adams, late in life, is angry that the Virginians are claiming all the credit. Everyone thinks Jefferson wrote the declaration when Adams was there first, Adams thinks. And everyone talks about Patrick Henry and they don't talk about James Otis. And for for Adams, Otis is kind of a placeholder for himself. So he's very proud of Massachusetts and of Boston and of Otis. And he says, actually, it all started in 1760 and it's James Otis and he tells the story. And at first I read this and I say, this is an old man just rewriting history in his own image or something. And then I started looking more closely and said, actually, Adams actually has a point. James Otis is a really important person. And I didn't know who the heck he was 10 years ago. I'd seen the name, but I had no idea what a fascinating character he was. And in Act 1, Scene 1, I've got him in a room, a great crusading lawyer. He's the guy who's going to bring all the Americans together for the first time against Britain in a thing called the Stamp Act Congress. That's his idea. He writes the first great pamphlet against British oppression that's read up and down the continent. And, okay, so I've got him in a room. I've got John Adams, who's just this 25-year-old newbie lawyer scribbling notes. And I've also got in that same room, because, yes, I am trying to sort of paint a picture, tell a story, set a scene, the greatest loyal, the guy who's going to go on to be the person most loyal to George III, um, who is actually very impressive. And I honestly, maybe I knew his name a couple of years ago, but I had no clue who he was. How can we know? story of American independence if we don't know the story of the folks on the other side. We're not all evil at all. So I, I won't tell you his name yet um, because you might want you know to ask about him. But, but in, I got three people in a room together for the very first time and they're going to be three of the leading characters for the next 15 years. James Otis, who gets hit by, he, he dies getting hit by lightning, very dramatic. Um, mm-hmm. He goes crazy even before that. 
John Adams was going to become one of the six great men of the revolution, along with Washington, Jeff, uh, Jefferson, um, uh, Franklin, um, Madison, um, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and I've got, um, um, uh, um, so James Otis, John Adams, and America's greatest loyalist. Go, go, go ahead and give us the governor. Yes, the governor, the royal governor of Virginia. At the time, he's a, the, a lieutenant governor. His name is Thomas Hutchinson, and he's smart, and he's honest, and, and he, he, he's, he cares about the people of his city, but he also very much loves his, his king. And, it, and he's an impressive business person. I talk about how he has two really extraordinary virtues. He's pious and tolerant. That's a hard combination. If you don't believe in things eternal, it's, it's easy to be tolerant, you know. Um, um, but, it, um, uh, but, but if you do, it's, it's sometimes hard not to be a bigot, you know. Oh, those other people have different beliefs. So he's both. Um, and um, um, he's an amazing business person. If he had been born 15 years earlier, he would have never had to pick between his loyalty to the crown and his loyalty to his hometown. He is almost, if, he's very similar to Ben Franklin, who, um, with whom he's friendly early on. They're both Boston-born. And if you had asked me or many an historian to predict in 1765 which one of these two is going to end up being loyal to the king, and which one is going to actually... Uh, um, um, uh, join the the, the the rebels, you probably would have said Ben Franklin will side with the king. He's a kind of establishment guy. He's off in London sucking up to the king. He wants his illegitimate son, um, William, to, to get royal preferment. He becomes the royally appointed governor of New Jersey. So you might have bet actually that Ben Franklin would be, you know, the, 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 the toady, the, the, the stooge of, of the crown and, and that Thomas Hutchinson, who's very well respected by the people of Boston would, would stay with that. If, if Thomas Hutchinson were alive, and I knew nothing about him, and he's a decent person, but he's on the wrong end from our point of view of the American Revolution. If he were alive today, he's, he's, he's basically a little too hierarchical, a little too much of a company man, so to speak. He's a brilliant business person as well. He would be, frankly, someone like Mitt Romney. I'm a Democrat, but I respect Mitt Romney. He's a decent, decent person. He's a smart guy. Um, and and I hate it that today we demonize each other way too much across the spectrum. So this book is a history book, but it's also truthfully trying to tell an American saga about how Americans come together. And so I'm not going to demonize the other side. I'm going to actually give you Thomas Hutchinson, who is a decent person. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Well, you, you got some lively, dramatic scenes of the mob going after Hutchinson and and he, he and, and his his very uh, his very dignified response to to, to it. I'll, I'll, I'll let readers um, take a look at that. Uh, you also give some profiles of uh, I guess I, I don't know if the, the term American sympathizers is correct or not. But in England, people like Pitt 
Hamden, and Wiltz. Uh, what, what was the basis for their, uh, well, how, how would you characterize, uh, I, mean, I mean, sympathizers, uh, uh, defenders? Um, yes. Uh, and one other guy, Isaac Barre, for whom we have Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, for example, and Wilkes is John Wilkes. So these guys are um, uh, Brits, but they can understand the world from the outsider point of view. Uh, Burke is Irish in um, uh, uh, birth, um, Catholic. So he, he understands, you know, the minority point of view a little bit. Um, Beret was actually um, a, a soldier who fought in the New World against the French and got to know Americans and said, these guys are real patriots, but don't mess with them. They really love their king, but you, you have to respect them. And, and they don't like, you know, being mistreated or, or ignored. Um, Pitt um, believes in the great British Empire, um, as does Franklin see early on, and he doesn't want to um, break the thing. He, he wants to create, um, so, so, and he thinks of Americans as, as his children too. Um, the guy who coins the phrase, sons of liberty, that's Isaac Beret, and, um, and Pitt will later say, Americans are not your bastard children, they are your, you know, authentic children. So, the, these guys are Brit um, uh, Lord Camden um, is, um, uh, if you were alive today or in the 20th century, he'd be someone like Earl Warren. He's a great liber civil libertarian, um, very much an insider, but can, who, can, who can begin to see the world from the point of view of the underdog. And, and, and they're, in my view, the, the wisest folks, um, and King George isn't listening to them, and he's not listening to the Americans. He surrounds himself with um, dimwits and nitwits and halfwits. And that's not the story that Andrew Roberts tells in The Last King of America, but I actually think it's the more correct story. George III is in a little bubble that can happen to powerful people. And he surrounds himself with kind of sycophants who look down their long noses at the Americans. And, and Thomas Hutchinson is a little bit too hierarchical, I, I admit. Um, but he, he also, though, really does care about common people around him, even though he's, he's very much, you know, um, uh, he has the, the, the fanciest house in town. And you're right, the, it gets destroyed. And it's totally unfair. Um, so, but early in his life, he, he's getting elected again and again by common folk, even though, you know, he's a pretty hierarchical fellow. Uh, let, let me jump to one of the images, because you do talk a lot about the importance of, of images during these decades. What's with that 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 picture, that snake uh, cut up in, in into different little pieces? Um, I presume a lot of our listeners know the image we mean, but what what is that snake? It's the world's first viral meme <laughs> because the motto underneath it's three words in short words: join or die. You know, just like my, my book, actually, originally, I was originally going to, the title was going to be America's Constitutional Conversation. I thought that's three words. Oh, but they're long words. And long words don't actually look that great on a, a book spine or on a book jacket. So the words that made us, five words, not three, but they're short. His was join or die. Three words and short ones of that. Um, so today it would be hashtag join or die. He comes up with this image. He's making an argument for a democratic culture. And the idea is because the um, colonies are geographically contiguous, we actually have to hang together because if we don't, if any one of us defects to some other regime, then we're going to have 
foreigners um, in the American continent. You're going to have, in effect, let's imagine. Now, he's doing this long before the American Constitution. He's starting to say this in 1754. It's the world's first cartoon, and he's saying, we have to hang together against the French, okay? And the colonies all have to chip in, okay? Um, and that's 1754, but it will later become, oh, we have to join together against the Brits because now they're the real threat. But we have to all hang together because if any one of us defects, the snake will die um, um, because this is, you know, the idea is that this, uh, the snake can't be sliced up. So let's, And this will become a Lincolnian theme. I'm totally all in. It's definitely George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. You can't leave. Once you're in, you're in. It's an indivisible union. And here's why. If South Carolina tomorrow could secede unilaterally, the day after that, if it wanted to, it could make an alliance with Putin. And the day after that, you would have Russians in America, which is not where you want them. Um, and if you don't understand that, ask any Ukrainian. You see, they're in a bad situation because they're surrounded by thugs. Franklin understands that the key is going to be kicking the French out and eventually kicking the Brits out, but we have to hang together. Otherwise, we will assuredly hang separately. We will be dead. And he does all this in one crude little cartoon. It's not high art. And three words, hashtag join or die. And the, the, this gets copied in newspapers up and down America in 1754, and then again in 1768, and then again in 1775-76. Um, um, uh, uh, um, it's the world's first cartoon. It's the world's first viral meme. And he's brilliant because he has to make it short. I, I'm long-winded. I apologize. But he has to make it short for a democratic culture. You know, keep it simple, stupid. He's got, a, you know, a simple picture and, and, a, and a simple slogan. Um, He's, he's an amazing um, product of a democratic culture, a democratic newspaper culture. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're, a, you're a legal scholar, mostly, I, I, I would say, getting into some, some very specific uh, legal details about some of our founding documents. And so let me, let me finish with, with a, a question on, on the Declaration. You say that at one point, in spite of all men are created equal, the Declaration actually does allow for some kind of hereditary monarchical society. How does Jefferson manage that? Um, I, if you had met me in college, I would have said, oh, if I'm ever lucky enough to have a kid, a, 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 a son, I'm going to name him Jefferson, assuming my wife you know, agrees. And I've soured on Jefferson over the years. This book is dedicated to Lynn Miranda um, of Hamilton fame and Ron Chernow, on which the book is, a ba uh, the, uh, the, the play, uh, the musical is based, Vanessa Nadal, Lynn's spouse. So I've become much more of a Hamilton person. Hamilton believed very deeply in America. I think Jefferson, frankly, was a, a hypocrite. Um, he, he's the poet of the American Revolution. His words soar. Um, um, Look, lots of people practice slavery. I get that. He didn't choose to, um, he inherited all this. But I end the book. We talked about how the book begins, 1760. And it's the first four score years. You're right, because um, I'm, I'm into Lincoln. And, 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 and the next volume is going to be 1840 to 1920, an equality revolution. And then the third volume will be 1920 to the, the present. So a saga of America from 1760 to, to 2000, what we have in common as Americans. But Jefferson 
Um, I end in 1840, and, and I talk at the end of my last chapter about the deaths of the founders. Washington frees his slaves. Jefferson doesn't. Madison doesn't. Jefferson gets worse and worse as time goes on on slavery. He starts out as an idealist imagining a better utopian world. But in order to defeat John Adams, who was making it a crime to criticize John Adams when Adams is present, Jefferson has to create a political party. And once he's created that political party, that's his path to power, and he doesn't want to smash it. And that means he's going to actually have to play footsie with the Deep South, which is part of his base, um, until he gets worse and worse on slavery. So he has all these wonderful phrases, all men are created equal, but he ends up not living them out. His is actually a downward trajectory on slavery. If he were alive today, in effect, I'm saying, and, and I understand the idea of party, because you think the other party's bad. If you I, I believe in the sanctity of innocent, unborn human life, it, it's hard to be a Democrat. I understand that. I, I happen to be a Democrat, but um, and I actually also happen to believe in, in, in the sanctity of, of unborn life. So, so if you're a party person, you, you don't want to go against the party, and that's Kevin McCarthy. But if you also think, well, there are principles, and I have to be true to them, and that's Liz Cheney. Okay, and we're seeing that right now play out. You know, and, and there are similar divisions among us, us Democrats. So, so Jefferson is depicted in this book as a very, very great person, but also, unfortunately, you know, a hypocrite, especially on slavery. The book is The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. Professor Marth, thank you for joining us. It's, it's been great. Thanks. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.